Welcome to another installment of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. You know, on my podcast, I've interviewed both writers and artists who work in comic books, both those just starting out and those working professionally. Today, I'm taking a slightly different approach. My guest is someone that has written some nonfiction work, but is looking to break into science fiction and is learning how to do that. And I think it's very important that we explore that on this show because things don't develop in a vacuum. Comic writers read books, comic artists look at other forms of art and dabble in other forms of art and creativity. So my guest today is clinical psychologist Heather Berberette. Heather is a clinical psychologist specializing in relationships, marital therapy, and trauma. She did make a contribution to the review book Outside in Make It So, which reviewed the Star Trek Next Generation episodes and movies, and it also contained other essays about the show. Since then, Heather has been working on her writing, Sci-Fi, and we talk about her work in progress, titled Separation, which is available on her website, and you can check out the first four chapters to see how that's progressing. She plans to release it this fall. Heather is also a big Doctor Who fan, as am I, and we will talk about Doctor Who. Hey, look, other shows, they talk about Star Trek quite often, and that's okay. I like to talk about Doctor Who. But not to worry. If you're not a fan, we're not getting too far into the weeds. And, of course, Heather answers my questions I ask all my guests so I can learn more about them as individuals. So please welcome my guest, Heather Berberette, writer of Separation, here now on Creator Talks. Heather, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. Heather, you have a private practice in clinical psychology that specializes in relationships, marital therapy, and trauma. You've been married to your wife for about 20 years, and you have a 12-year-old daughter. I say this to put it in context of what stage you are at in life. And you started writing about three years ago, which all began from an emotional time travel experience you had during an Easter dinner. Would you please explain what that experience was and why afterward you decided to start writing your own fictional work. This is one of the um, craziest stories of my life, and I have a few of them. But I was just sitting at Easter dinner with my dad and my wife and my daughter, and we were just chatting. And I said something about how hard it had been for me to turn 47. And there was just something about that number that just felt just felt significantly older to me. So I didn't have it at 40. I had it at 47. And my dad kind of pauses and he looks at me and he said, well, you're only 46. And I, of course, have to be a smart ass. And I say, dad, I know how old I am. I mean, honestly, it was like I was 16 again, as we do. And he looked at me and he said, well, I was there. I remember. I'm pretty sure you're only 46. (laughs) So I have to like, I get all red in the face and I kind of sputter and my daughter and my wife are laughing hysterically at me. I tell myself I surreptitiously pull my phone down. I'm sure they were all watching me. And I kind of downloaded an app really quickly. Like how old are you or something like that? (laughs) Because I don't trust my math. Math's not my strong suit. And I like dial it in and they're like, you know, and the app tells me I'm 46 and I'm utterly stunned. I mean, 
while intellectually I know that no time travel occurred, uh, I, emotionally it, it absolutely felt that way. I felt like I got a year of my life back. I don't know how long I had been advancing myself. It could have been years for all I know. Well, I know when I turned 40, that was actually my 40th birthday. So, it, you know, it could have been as much as like six or seven years that I'd been. I don't know. Anyway, this tells you a lot about my mental state. Uh, <laughs> So uh, it really was pretty overwhelming. And uh, and one of the things I noticed arising out of this feeling of do-over was a, an urgency to make it count, right? To take that emotional energy that had been generated and put it towards something. Because life is busy and full and you don't get renewal energy all that often, Right. So I realized that the thing I had always wanted to do was write. I have a very clear memory of being in grade school and walking to school. And I, I think I was relatively young because I uh, wasn't taking the bus yet. And remember thinking that one day I'd be a writer, but also clearly thinking I hadn't lived long enough to have anything to say. So I decided that I was going to use that experience to get over my fear and get over myself and start writing. Also, probably about a year before that, I had had a pretty powerful dream that had a complete story arc in it that also was very emotional, uh, which was the motivation or the story that I started writing about. Uh, and so I here I had this full arc of a story in my head. What I decided to do was do NaNoWriMo that year. So, you know, Easter is probably in April. So that following November, I signed up for NaNoWriMo. Uh, which is National Novel Writing Month, if people don't know, uh, where you commit uh, online to writing 50,000 words. And it's a great online support community. There's a lot of motivation. There's a lot of tips and help if you do the program. And it's free. So I did it, and I completed it. I was as proud of writing those 50,000 words as I'd been of getting my doctorate. So that tells you something. And it was a great sense of achievement. And I found that I really, really enjoyed the writing process a lot. I think it is so fun to write, and I never thought I would feel that way. So that's my story. So I've done three NaNoWriMo's. I completed the novel, which was really a pile of 150,000 words. Uh, then I joined a reading critique group. We have a really amazing writing community here in San Diego, and uh, there's a nonprofit organization called San Diego Writers, Inc., and they offer a vast amount of programming for any kind of writing you want to do. And so they have reading critique groups with successful professional authors. So I joined one, and so I've been taking those 150,000 words and learning to craft them into something that you know, maybe somebody might want to read one day. I definitely learned that having a story idea and communicating that to somebody else in a way that's enjoyable are two totally different things that have nothing to do with each other. So, so that there's, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> yep. It's been great. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> but there's more. You are published as a nonfiction writer contributing to outside in make it so, which contains new perspectives on the 174 Star Trek Next Generation episodes and the movies. And you wrote one of the reviews in the book. Which one was that? I wrote commentary on the episode Legacy. Uh, and my chapter is called Deal Me In. And so this is the story where we meet Tasha Yar's sister. And she ends up being a pretty complex character. She's kind of a, um, not a double agent, but she plays the crew for her own agenda. This episode opens with one of the poker scenes, which is why I've 
I've been a Star Trek fan my whole life. The camaraderie among the characters and the cast is part of what's always appealed to me in a pretty emotional way. So it opens with a poker scene. And then we go on to have the adventures of the crew. And there's rebels and resistance and fighting and all that juicy stuff. You know, Legacy isn't one of the most popular ones. It's certainly not one of the ones that makes anybody's top 20 list. But for me, um, as a, you know, a kid who didn't know she was gay, looking back, I can really identify that how outside I had felt all my life, how I didn't quite fit in. I also have realized more recently that I didn't fit in because I was a total nerd as well as <laughs> queer. So um, there was lots of ways I was different from the other people in my school. But that combination of having that poker game and then Tasha's sister is really sexy in that kind of butchy androgynous way. She wears those big 80s shoulder pads. She's got that kind of very sexy 80s hair. And you look back at Reed's now very lesbian, even though at the time I think it was 80s. But there's lots of, um, I think, lesbian signaling in that character, which I also believe I responded to, even though I wasn't out even to myself at the time that TNG was airing, this episode aired. Uh, I just wrote about that sense of how we can feel a sense of belonging in our media and our social media now in a way that can be hard sometimes when the people around you don't sound like you or look like you or care about the same things you care about. So that's what my little 500 word essay is about. Now I have to go back and watch that. <laughs> it's not the best episode in the world, but if you look at it through my eyes. How did you secure a place in the book? Oh, this is great. So I was at Gallifrey One, uh, which I'm now a devoted attendee to, but this was my first Gallifrey. Um, and I went alone and I had been listening to Reality Bomb, uh, the podcast, which I love, and Graham Burke and Robert Smith, question mark. That's how he writes his name to differentiate himself from another Robert Smith. Anyway, we're holding what they, a coffee clutch, which at Gallifrey One is a chance for 12 people to meet for an hour in a really intimate setting with creators and just dish, you know, just talk about their lives and their projects. And so Graham Burke and Robert Smith were doing one. And uh, so I signed up for it. And uh, it, there was only two of us. There was me and David Barsky, who I've also since become friends with, and Robert and Graham and I. And we just chatted and talked and talked about their projects, Outside In is one, and just had really a, a fun time talking with each other. Then a few months later, Robert contacted me and said, I've got a couple slots left in this book. Do you want to write one? And of course I did, because awesome. Um, and I hadn't had a lot of opportunity to do writing within the fan communities yet. I think of myself a bit as a tween, as a fan. I leapt on that opportunity. And, and then he's asked me to do another one. We have a Buffy edition of it coming out soon. And so I wrote an essay on the episode as well. Well, now that you're getting into writing fiction, is there anything that you picked up, either in terms of writing nonfiction or from the business side of publishing, that carries over into you writing fiction work now? I feel like these are super different worlds. I mean, so far, the nonfiction I've written has been on my blog, or it's been invited, or I did um, two years ago have an essay in the San Diego Comic-Con official souvenir book 
on Wonder Woman. So that I submitted for and it was selected. But for fiction, there's this whole world of agents and editors and it feels very daunting to me. So I'm trying to get a manuscript that I feel proud of and then I'll enter that world. But so far, it doesn't feel like they cross over much at all. So I don't know, maybe you have some ideas for me about how they might be similar. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know when I figure it out, okay, good. <laughs> which Thanks. I haven't yet. <laughs> Let's talk about your sci-fi novel, In Progress, the one you're writing called Separation. And you're targeting for publication this fall, hopefully. And it reads very well. I did read the first four chapters that were online on your site that I will put the link in the show notes. And you do paint a very vivid picture with your words. I feel like I'm in the narrator's skin. Oh, good. My ankle hurts. <laughs> I've got pine needles in my face, you know. <laughs> Chapter one opens with Riley McCain waking up naked. Is it butt naked or buck naked? What is the problem? Oh, I think it's an either or. I think either one's acceptable, but I'm, <laughs> I don't know what's I the think now I must look that up. I, I, I My impulse is that either are acceptable, but I think that's a very good question. I don't have the answer to that. So we find out about her in the first chapter you wrote, and then in the second chapter we find out about Emily, her group and individual therapist. She's a no-show. Where is Riley? What happened to her? Something happened that caused her to wind up in the woods. So we find out about that, and this is just the first four chapters. Roughly when in the future does this story take place? 100 or 150 years in the future. And my goal is to really, as much as I unveil the characters in the writing, is to also unveil the world, which is our planet, but a planet that has shifted significantly in the intervening years, in the intervening century. But we still have parks and trees, which is good. This is a world that we did successfully shift. I'm pretty concerned as I know many of us are about the path we're on. The scientists are clear that we've passed the point of easy solutions to our environmental problems. You know, not to be a downer, but I really don't know that we're going to make it before we make the planet uninhabitable for us. So rather than making a dystopian novel, which there's plenty of those if you know, if you're into that, mm -hmm. which I am, actually, I love those. But I made the conscious decision to start from a more hopeful place to start from a more ambiguous place where we've proven that as a species, we can have far enough vision and can be collectively self-sacrificial enough to protect the planet as a way to protect ourselves. So I decided to start at that point, which then made the following conflicts, I think, more ambiguous. Because one of the things in dystopia is that, okay, we all made really, really bad decisions. Can we recover from the pit, right? So in some ways, it's much more black and white, right? There's a clear good and there's a clear bad. And I just think those are a bit easier. And dystopian novels tend to be more YA focused, at least I'd say in the last decade. So they are more simple in that way. I thought it was I thought I was going to write a YA novel until Riley started swearing immediately, profusely, when I was writing her. And I'm like, oh, I guess this is going to be an adult novel because clearly this chick likes to swear. So I decided to set in the future to make things less clear and less obvious. And yet to have had us collectively make good choices and still collectively also make bad choices, right? So I wanted it to be grayer and more ambiguous. So that's the future we're in. 
we've done what was necessary to save the planet. Um, we've made a lot of really good choices as a global community, but we still have trauma globally. There are still things we're trying to recover from, and that's what the novel is, one of the things the novel is about. It's okay. You're not being a downer by mentioning how we're past that point of easy solutions because there are a lot of people doing the right things to be good stewards of the earth and you know recycle and be more conscientious about pollution, but there's also a lot of people that just deny the science. Yeah. People in power, which is scary to me, probably one of the scariest things because it's like it's right there. The math doesn't lie, but yet because people have other agendas, they ignore that for the easy way to boost profits or make jobs. But we have to evolve and change along with everything else. And we have to find new ways to make a living or fuel our cars, whatever, you know, it, we have to evolve along because for so long, I think during the time of industrialization, we've taken the cheapest and easiest way. There is waste involved. And have we always properly dealt with that? And we haven't. So now it comes time to pay up. So we have to make some sacrifices. I don't mean to be a downer, but that's my take on it. I completely agree. And I think as much as any of us individually do our recycling and buy our low emissions vehicles or our hybrids or electrics and do all the things we individually can do, we're past the point of that being able to turn the tide. We need global effort, <laughs> global collaboration and effort to change the path we're on. The science is pretty clear on that. That's going to take some leaders who are really committed to the process and will lead in that direction, not follow. I don't know if you listen to Embedded, which is an NPR podcast, but they just did a five episode series on coal country. This is a perfect example, microcosm of what we're talking about. The people who make a living off of coal are real people. They're just like me and my family. They need to put food on the table. And they live in an impoverished environment where there's not much going on. And I think one of the problems is that, you know, we on the West Coast are like, hey, we'll use the sun. We've, the, You know, we'll stop coal, bad coal. Well, you know, I don't know if it's millions of people. I suspect it's millions of people depend on that to be able to exist. So our job is not just to not use coal. Our job is to care for the people that depend on that usage and find new ways for them to put food on the table. And I think it's that comprehensive, collective like there's multiple problems to solve at the same time and we just don't put our effort towards it. We don't see it as complicated a problem as it is. So anyway, you know, I, I just skipped I just skipped all that and just said we 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 figured that out. We're, We're on to new things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a trauma specialist and I understand deeply how profoundly trauma affects not just the individual organism that was traumatized, but how it affects the family systems and the community systems. And so in this book, yes, we were able to get together to fix things finally, but we collectively are also traumatized by what happened before. And so this book in some ways is part of the continued echoing of the trauma that was experienced um, and how do we deal with that as well. I don't know. That's the idea. <laughs> okay. Like I said, good ideas and actually communicating them in a the way that someone wants to read. Those are two totally different things. As I said, the first four chapters are online as working drafts on your website, and that is Doctor Who on the Couch, and I will definitely get to that. I'm not going to leave that hanging out there. Now, what I find interesting is it's a work in progress, and that made me think of the individual who wrote The Martian, uh, Andy Weir, and he did that first as a self-published book online, 
in chapters, and then as he went along, he'd get feedback from people, particularly scientists, and would say, well, actually, this is the way that would work. And he kept refining and refining the book until the final version, he had all these things buttoned down based on feedback that made it more realistic and grounded. Now, I know this is a different kind of story, but do you plan to take any kind of feedback and assimilate that into the finished product to kind of tighten things up or add in some thoughts from other individuals that give you a little suggestions here and there? Is that what you're going for? Well, you know, in my reading critique group that I'm part of, that's what we do. So we submit pages every week and then everyone in the group reads it and offers feedback. And if anyone were to read the working chapters online and want to give me feedback, that would be great, especially if it's helpful and not all negative. I don't have any other than what I said, is it butt or buck naked? Because I was like, hmm. That's great. You should post that and I'll look it up. I mean, dialogue is good, right? It's funny you say that. Andy was at Comic-Con right before um, the movie came out and as was the director and I think a couple of the producers. And he talked extensively about the collaborative process of the book and I found it really fascinating. He said that part of why the book is so good is because the science is real. I mean, you know, there was, I don't know if you saw this, but there is a lot of Twittering going on afterwards with people going, God, I didn't know we made it to Mars already. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was so good. Like people thought it was like based on a true story, you know, but it's interesting because I had already participated in a collaborative writing project uh, a couple years earlier, which was also part of my motivation. So Leah London, you can find her on Amazon. She and I went to high school together and we're Facebook friends. And I saw that she does what's called collaborative fiction, where authors put, do it very, the whole intention is to write the book collaboratively. So they'll get a group of people together and they'll post chapters and we'll offer feedback and the author will use those ideas and critiques in the book. So Leah was starting a new book and I kind of jumped on and, um, really loved the process of helping her write. And I didn't write it. Let's be super clear. I had ideas. She took them or she left them. These are Leah's books. I had so much fun with the first book. I really pushed her to write the second and then she wrote a third. It's the Pearl Trilogy. They're all on Amazon if you want to check them out. That process really gave me some courage because she liked my ideas. And I realized that I had ideas that were good, that I could be creative in that way. And so that was also, I think, part of the feeding, the multiple streams that led into my decision to finally start to write on my own. I don't plan on writing the novel collaboratively in the way uh, Leah did by posting chapters and with a group of people. But I certainly love the feedback because I think my ideas about trauma and recovery and connectivity and relationship and oneness with self are important. And if people can connect to those through the medium of fiction and storytelling, then that would be awesome. So I'd like it to be something people want to read. But really, I'm having so much fun writing it. I just keep that as my goal. Just keep enjoying the process. Now, you are focused on separation now. Do you have a grand design for a trilogy or connected stories down the road? In my head right now, it's a trilogy. I have three books written and Separation is the first one. We'll see. You know, as I do the rewrite process and the editing process, it's possible that those will all get condensed down to one larger novel or two novels. I don't really know how it's going to go. I'm pretty much a newbie at this. So, but I do have the full, a full trilogy that's already on paper 
But again, it's like a pile of words at this point. And how are you progressing for a release, either self-published or through a publisher late this year? My goal is to be done with a rewrite of the first novel by the fall of the end of this year. And then I'm going to work with my teacher about whether I'm going to self-publish or try to seek an agent at that point. I mean, I guess if we decide to self-publish, it could be up by the end of the year, but uh, I haven't decided if I'm going to go that route yet. I have to make sure that it's good enough, you know? <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Now, on to Doctor Who, since I did drop that your book is now on your site, Doctor Who on the Couch. And uh, you're a fan. I'm a fan. You've even cosplayed Rose Tyler at San Diego Comic-Con. That's how big a fan you are. And River Song. And Bill. Oh. I got a few in my closet. And the moment. So I have four. Four costumes I put together, yeah. You have gone back and started watching Doctor Who from the beginning, but what was your first introduction to Doctor Who? What episode or what story was it that you first saw the Doctor? So I have a very, very fleeting memory of seeing Four in his scarf running when I was a kid. You know, I must have just caught an episode or two as a child on PBS, but I was really a Trek fan, so... Plus, it was British, and it was weird, and it's like, ugh, it's not Star Trek, so, you know... <laughs> Um, after I'd kind of come out as a nerd about six or seven years ago at Comic-Con, um, I was standing in sales, which if anyone's been to San Diego Comic-Con, it's the big central area. It's one of the places the cosplayers collect. And I was looking at everything and I realized I felt so at home. And honestly, it like hit me like it hit me when I was a lesbian. I was like, oh, these are my people. I'm a total nerd. It all makes sense, which is exactly the thoughts I had when I realized I was a lesbian. So it's very strange. So I've, I've had two big coming outs in my life. One is a lesbian, one is a nerd. But um, anyway, um, that year was Matt Smith's last season as 11. I actually saw him on a panel of like, I don't know, I think the panel was called something like sexy boys of sci-fi or something. I don't know. I was actually there for the X-Files. You have to catch the end of a previous panel or you won't get a seat. Anyway, so I first saw Matt Smith there, but I had had a very, I had some very good friends and actually some patients of mine who were like, listen, you want to claim to be a nerd. You can't be a nerd until you watch Doctor Who. A little bit of gatekeeping there, but what did I know? At some point I was like, you know, okay, I'll give this a shot, you know? So I watched Rose and I was like, Okay, I'm going to get through the first season. And I got through this Levine, <laughs> which I was like, I cannot believe I'm watching this. This is ridiculous. Slime-covered farting aliens. Are, is this actually on TV? But by the end of the first season, I had completely fallen in love with Rose. The message of you don't know what's going to happen today, you know, because the TARDIS lands and they don't know where they are and they don't know what's going to happen, right? And Rose would step out of those doors, rubbing her hands together in glee, saying, bring it on. And that message, I, I think I really needed to hear in that time in my life. It really inspired me to see life as an adventure. Um, so I really fell in love with Rose first, 100%. And then who doesn't fall in love with David Tennant next? Uh, though the first transition was hard. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, it took me quite a while. Um, with David Tennant. And then, you know, by the time we got into like halfway through season two, I was a complete and total goner. I'd started dreaming about the show. I had to watch it every day. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I think I fell in love as hard for Doctor Who as I did my wife. It's just the most bizarre experience. I don't even know what to Isn't say it? about it. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing, actually. It's like, really? It's just a TV show. I've had the same experience. I saw it, uh, geez, I guess I was in, I don't know, high school. A friend of mine had it on in his room, and it, it was, again, it was Tom Baker, 
Yeah. And uh, I think it was Megalos. And I was like, well, I don't really get what's going on. So I didn't really care. Right. And then a few years later in college, I met a guy who was a big Doctor Who fan. And he was explaining it all to me. And I was like, oh, well, okay. So then I started watching it on our local public television stations. One had on Peter David's Doctor. I'm sorry. One had on Peter Davidson's Doctor. Peter David would have been interesting. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> Peter... <laughs> <laughs> I saw Peter Davidson's Doctor on Channel 12, and I would watch John Pertwee's Doctor on Channel 11. And like you, I just dove into it. Like I was watching it, you know, 11 o'clock at night until 1 in the morning, and then I'd be watching it Saturday in the afternoon, then I'd be watching it Saturday night on another station. I was like just soaking it all in, and I just – I went crazy over it and just started yeah. really eating it up. And, you know, friends, family thought it was nuts. I don't yeah, know why I watch a stupid thing. I'm like, this is great stuff, but it's so cheesy. I'm like, but that's okay. I don't care. I'm having fun yeah. with this, you know. My wife actually turned to me and she's like, "Are you okay?" Talk <laughs> <laughs> to somebody. I mean, she's a psychologist too, so she was halfway joking, <laughs> but only halfway joking. Yeah, I, I have never had any other than falling in love. I've never had an experience like that before. Certainly not with a media franchise, even Star Trek. I mean, I was so young when I started watching Star Trek. Maybe I would have had that experience if I'd been older. And then when um, Eleven came along. I didn't think I could fall harder, but I have a thing for Matt Smith that's deep, profound, and everlasting. And I'm gay, so I don't know what that's about. But um, <laughs> Is it your favorite doctor? I feel relatively confident Jody will be my favorite doctor soon, but I could watch Matt Smith all day long. I think he's brilliant, and there's something about his old you know, the old man in the young body portrayal that snags me pretty hard. I even saved the 50th and the final episode till right before. I just waited till right before a deep breath. So I didn't have some long lag time. But Peter Capaldi's my first Doctor Live, right? So I went to the cinemas for the theaters for deep breath, the showings of deep breath. And um, and took my, my wife and she looks at me afterward and she's like, I'm sorry, I'm trying, but I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't think Deep Breath is a very good jumping on point, actually, even though it's a brilliant episode. Watching PCAP live, and then when I was, you know, done with the past episodes, I decided to go back from the beginning. And I said for a while, you know, I'm not falling that hard. I'm not going to go back and watch the old episodes. I'm not that crazy. Well, it was only a few months before I started doing that. So I've watched all of it. I've listened to probably about a fourth of the Telesnaps uh, reconstructions. And I'm getting to those slowly. Those are harder those are harder for me. Uh, they don't hold my attention as well. But I do like them. I find I have much more appreciation for them now than when I was first going through and kind of watching them, the classics in order. I have a bunch of those on videotape. A group of individuals, and I don't know if they still exist right now. It's called Loose Cannon. Yeah, I've watched all those. And uh, Do you have a favorite classic doctor? Two, obviously. Okay. I mean, come on, because anybody else is – no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Patrick Troughton's a miracle. I just, and you know, he's very similar to Matt Smith, right? I also love Seven. Ace is my classic companion in my heart, though I also adore Zoe. Titan has a new comic out about the Seventh Doctor. I just got it this week. Oh, is it good? It's very good. Yeah, I love the art. I don't have it in front of me. I can't quote to you who's writing it or the art. I usually have this stuff in front of me, but it'd probably be something you would like if you are a big fan of the Seventh Doctor. Hi folks, I'm interrupting the interview to bring you this information that I should have had at my fingertips and that I promised Heather I'd let her know. That issue I'm speaking of, the Doctor Who 7th Doctor story, is called Operation Volcano. It is a three-parter published through Titan Comics, and here's what's important about it. Andrew Cartmel and Ben Aronovich 
have written this three-parter. They are the writers for the Seventh Doctor's episode, Remembrance of the Daleks, which was broadcast as part of the 25th anniversary of Doctor Who. And Andrew Cartmill also wrote two of the Seventh Doctor episodes in his final season, The Curse of Fenric and also Ghostlight. Now, Ghostlight was the last Doctor Who episode film of the classic series. It wasn't the last one broadcast. That was Survival, but it was the last one actually filmed with Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor and Sophie Aldred as his companion. Now, those three episodes in particular, Remembrance of the Daleks, Curse of Fenric, and Ghostlight, reveal a darker, more Machiavellian seventh Doctor, something I really wish we had seen more of in the series and probably would have had it been renewed. However, that aspect of the Seventh Doctor would be explored further in the Virgin novels and BBC novels before Doctor Who's return to television in 2005. And Operation Volcano through Titan Comics is based on that version of the Seventh Doctor. One more note about Operation Volcano. It is illustrated by Christopher Jones, one of the best Doctor Who artists out there. And now, back to the interview. I love the Seventh Doctor and the second. And it just breaks my heart. We have so little of his work. You I know? know. But what exists is great, though. It's so good. I just keep, you know, I just keep hoping. They'll find more. Well, they found Enemy of the World, right? And uh, they found the rest of Web of Fear or most of it. I think all but one, I think. Yeah, that happened right before I came into fandom. I found them super easy, but then all the podcasts were like, oh my God, can't you believe we have this? It's so exciting. And I'm like, what? It was just right there. When I saw Web of Fear, it was part of a Lost in Time collection on DVD. So I think I only saw one episode. That's all that existed. I think it was the first episode. And I'm like, I want more. I want more. So when they found those, I was super excited. I know it's out on disc now, but I downloaded it off of iTunes. Oh, like, yeah. I want to see this right now. There's two things I'm sad that I missed. I'm sad that I missed the Day of the Doctor phenomenon because everybody talks about how amazing that was the 50th and I'm sad that I missed being there for the recovery of lost episodes I'm really assuming I'm gonna get to have that second experience at some point once you've seen all the other doctors you've watched all the shows you put that time in and you watch that episode it doesn't hit anybody else like it would hit a longtime fan who's seen all the shows yeah, I you know, agree. The last scene with all the doctors, I was like, <laughs> I need a tissue. <laughs> it was just great. Well, and I think, too, part of why I decided to go back was for love of the reboot because I could feel the continuity. I could just feel it. I could almost see it go by me and not be able to grab onto it. And I am now, I've realized, a total continuity whore. Give me continuity, please. So the idea of being able to understand a story that at this point is 55 years old is amazing. What an amazing creative endeavor to tell a story between people for 55 years. My time at Gallifrey One has really taught me I hear it's different in other fandoms, so I think this might be somewhat unique to Doctor Who, but that it's such a collective a storytelling process. The people who tell the stories were the fans. They were me. It really is a community of people telling the stories that are important to them, and they've been doing it for half a century. And I just find that really compelling and awesome. I love the history of it. I love the variety of having all those different doctors. I love watching it evolve over time, some of them being a little snapshot of history and pop culture. I just love everything about it. Now, you have a blog, Doctor Who on the Couch, and you're writing about the psychology of the time-traveling doctor. Tell me about the blog. Thank you for asking. Once we got into season eight, I was bursting, bursting to talk to people about 
PCAP and what was happening on the screen. And I didn't, again, I, I wasn't very immersed in the community. I wrote a couple emails to some of the newsletters, but I didn't get any responses. And and then it just occurred to me that I could start a blog. All these other people start blogs. I could start a blog. So I did. It's called Doctor Who on the Couch. I have a lot of fun playing with miniatures. <laughs> Because I make a little <laughs> photo of something about the episode on the couch. And of course, the couch is the Freudian idea of psychoanalysis. I write every week when it's on air. And then I'm pretty sporadic in between. I have intentions to write in between and life takes over. I find that as a psychologist, I have a pretty different perspective on the world. It's part of the hazards of the trade that over time you come to see people's motivations in pretty complex and broad ways. And so I found that I was understanding episodes very differently than the people I was listening to on podcasts or in newsletters or talking to one-on-one. And I knew that my perspective was informed by psychology, by seeing patterns of relatedness and motivations in people that, you know, if that's not your trade, you don't think of it that way. So I just started writing kind of psychological analyses on each episode. The first ones are really long and complicated and depth. And a couple people were like, I like the idea, but I can't get through that. <laughs> I'm like, okay, got the message. <laughs> so I try to pick one or two ideas about each episode and about the arc of the season that I'm not hearing people talk about that I see super clearly. And then I try to write about that. In the last season, I really saw the story about the broad arc of the season was about this idea of growing up and a process, a psychological process we all go through called differentiation, where we begin to see ourselves as a separate entity from our parents and become our own person. And I track through the episodes how that's happening between Bill and the doctor. I mean, we even have an episode where she's literally moving out and he's helping her move because she's moving out of home and joining her friends, right? Knock, knock. And nobody else saw that. <laughs> nobody else talked about it that way. But I saw it and I talked about it. And um, when I've talked to other people about it that way and they go back and watch it, they're like, oh, yeah, I totally see that happening. So I just do stuff like that. I pull out threads that a non-psychological person probably wouldn't pick up on and talk about it. And mostly I have fun getting to write about it. So for fans, when you go back and watch those episodes again, go to the blog. It'll just give you a different perspective on what's happening. And I believe, I mean, you know, these stories are coming out of a human mind. They're essentially Rorschach's. Now, whose Rorschach it is, I don't know. Even with when a script is just Stephen Moffat's script, he had input from lots of other people about that story and those words. They're like a collective Rorschach of the production team. So you can't say it belongs to any one person, and I would never do that. But it's definitely giving you a look at the creators of the show as well. I mean, when we write, we're not just telling a story. We're sharing ourselves because that story comes from inside that mind. So... I think about it that these are real human stories, right? These are real people's stories translated into fictional characters and fictional storylines, but they're real stories about real people somewhere at some point. Now, I know you haven't read a lot of comics, and I'm curious if you've seen the ones or have read the ones that were done through IDW about the next generation and Doctor Who that crossed over? You know, I haven't because I came on after Titan and had already gotten the license. So I've read a few of the Titan ones, but I haven't done any of the IDWs, none of the old stuff. Something you may want to check out, I recommend because uh, Scott and David Tipton wrote it and J.K. Woodward, who I've had on the show, actually did the art and it's painted art. Ooh. Yes, and very good likenesses. It was the Matt Smith Doctor that's in the book. 
Oh, right. Oh, you mean the Star Trek crossovers? The, yes. Sorry, Next Generation. Right. Uh, I've heard of those, but I had not read those. Yeah. You should put the links in the show notes so I can find them. I will do that. Yeah, they did one recently, Mirror Broken. Cool. Yeah. If you haven't read them, I'll put the links in. They're very good. Fully painted. Incredible stuff. Let's discuss another doctor, what he did, William Mouton Marston. You did mention uh, you had written something about Wonder Woman in the San Diego Comic-Con program. I did. The essay, this was back in 2016, How Wonder Woman Helped Me Find My Superpower. And it's on your professional website, and I'll put a link for that in the show notes as well so people can read the whole thing. When Linda Carter played Wonder Woman, and I remember watching the show too back when I was a little kid, you were in third grade. Please tell me why she had a profound impact upon you and how it influenced your chosen profession. I loved Wonder Woman and the Bionic Woman. Those were my girls. They were at the same time. They're probably, if I were to do a survey, I should have done this when I wrote that piece. I bet they were the two most powerful women on TV. That would be my guess. There was something about being able to save the world that really appealed to me. For Wonder Woman, she was unbelievably beautiful, which I think also appealed to me as a child who later became a lesbian or realized she was a lesbian. I think there was just so much about how she presented herself, even though at the time, I didn't know that it was so campy. I was like, I don't know, how old are you in third grade? Eight, nine? Camp was not a thing. I understood. I also loved the Batman and Robin stuff from the same time, right? Uh, It was in syndication by then. But, you know, camp wasn't a thing I understood. I just loved it all. I just loved saying the world and being powerful and kicking ass with the bad guys. I think for Wonder Woman, as I look back, she has a real transparency to her, a real vulnerability to her. You know, she doesn't hide behind anything. She's got, like, bracelets that defend her from bullets. She has the lasso of truth. One of the ways she saves the day is by making people be authentic. (laughs) She has an invisible plane. She's up in the air and everybody can see her. Like the only reason she puts on the guys is because other people have a problem with who she is, not because she has a problem with who she is. She was just herself and she didn't care if people didn't like it or not particularly. She became someone else in order to do her job not because she was trying to hide who she was. So everything about her was about authenticity and strength and power and vulnerability. Looking back now, I can see how much that appealed to me and still appeals to me. I was thrilled, as were all my other mommy friends, with the Wonder Woman movie. She was amazing. It was amazing. We all cried. There was something incredible about seeing those warriors, those female warriors fight. Such a brilliant movie. It was a brilliant movie, and my wife and I went to go see it. We really enjoyed it. It was the... In our opinion, it was the best of the DC movies to date of recent. I love the original Superman from the 70s, Michael Keaton, Batman, and all that stuff, and Christopher Nolan's Batman. But I'm amazed that it took that long to get Wonder Woman on the big screen. Are you really, though? No. (laughs) But I'm sorry it took so long. I should say that. (laughs) Yeah. I think people are finally picking up that women are dropping big dollars, big money, on having identifiable characters on the screen as well. I'm hoping that we are in a true time of transition here. Can't wait for Captain Marvel. So excited to see that. Uh, Hoping for a Surrey movie alone. (laughs) Whatever about Black Panther. Can we just have the girls, please? I really like the way 
they're being written. You know, I mean, they're characters like everybody else on the screen. And I won't often hear people position that as, well, it's a strong female character. And I said to my wife, I said, what do you think about all this, you know, these people commenting? It's a strong female character. She says, well, here's the takeaway. Women are people too. <laughs> I said, well put. People talk about this all the time, but when you have a single woman in a movie, she becomes the representative of women. So whatever you make her to be, it's going to be not be enough. It's not going to capture the fact that the female experience is as varied and diverse and up and down as a male experience, right? So we just have to have more female characters. So the more female characters there are in these media franchises, the more they can be all different. We don't have to have strong female characters. We can have weak ones. We can have bad ones. So one of my favorite characters of this last season was Jerry Hogarth and Jessica Jones. She is a badass, whoring, lesbian attorney. And she's amazing. And part of why we got to have a Jerry Hogarth and have this complex anti-hero as a woman is because that whole season is all about the women. The whole season. The men are there. They're important. They add to the story, but they support the storylines of the women. And so we get to have this badass lesbian attorney who's the anti-hero because there are so many other women in that season and it's their story. So I just want more women so we can have all kinds of female characters, one of whom will be strong, but some of whom will be weak because guess what? We all feel weak sometimes too. We just need diversity of the characters. That's what's important. Absolutely. Well put. Now, before we get on to the fun questions that I ask all my guests, is there anything that I missed that you would like to share with us? No, you were amazingly thorough, and I'm honored by that. Thank you for taking the time to look me up. Okay. Now, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I actually like to write, which is a new thing for me to write for pleasure. I kind of made myself write for a long time. I need enough time. That's the trick, right? I need about an hour because it's hard to settle into that space. But if I can snag an hour and an hour and a half, my favorite thing to do is just sit down and write my stories. But I also love to watch TV. I love my franchises. I'm currently um, binge watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because I kind of got disconnected in the middle of season four. But season five kicks ass. People go check it out. <laughs> now, thinking back to a birthday that stands out in your memory, why does it? Was it where you were, who you were with, gifts, the environment? Which birthday stands out for you? So I have a great 16th birthday story. So I was, what, a junior, sophomore, junior in high school. My birthday fell on a school day, and two of my friends kidnapped me. They wrapped my hands in a jump rope, <laughs> scarf around my eyes, and led me around for about 45 minutes around the neighborhood, and then ended it with a surprise birthday party with my friends. And that was amazing. I mean, that was just the sweetest thing to do. What really makes it stand out is that they had run into a photographer from my local paper. I grew up in Salem, Oregon, so this was the Statesman Journal. I think this was the day before my birthday. So it must have been a Friday. So my birthday is the 9th, so it must have been the 8th. Anyway, the next morning on my birthday, I'm on the front page of my local paper with a blindfold on, my hands tied with a jump rope, being led around by my friends to my surprise birthday party. So on my 16th birthday, I'm on the front page of the paper. It was amazing. <laughs> now think back about the same time uh, you're a teenager, somewhere like 12, 13, somewhere in there. Look around your bedroom. What did you have on the wall? Pictures, posters, and what were you listening to? What was on the turntable, your cassette player? What was there? This was before the age of easily gettable music, you know? 
gosh, do we still have eight tracks? Cassettes were big, cassette tapes, and we were still using records. Uh, but I think the radio still had a lot of prominence in my life then. I was doing a lot of listening to the top 40 and whatever was popular I was into. But I had this other more nerdy side to me. I liked Irish music. I liked old Beatles. I liked Roger Whitaker. Really? Okay. (laughs) I loved John Denver. So I had the secret side of music that none of my friends knew about. And then I just did a lot of radio listening. So whatever was popular then. I think Duran Duran came after that, but I fell for them pretty hard. But I think in tweens, they weren't big yet. Yeah, I listened a lot to the radio. And when I was little, it was like AM, mainly for me. But, you know, one of the things that sticks in my mind, since a lot of the music I listened to was on vinyl, when I had an album and it had a skip in it or a little glitch in it, and that was the first time I heard the music, my first copy of the music that I had, it stays in my head. Oh, yeah. You know, I hear it in the radio and it's like, where's where's a little crackle or pop? It just sticks with you. It's like watching The Sound of Music. Like, I can tell you every single place where there's going to be a commercial break, even though now we watch it, there isn't any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. The way you first see it or hear it is the way it just sticks in your head. Yeah, it's crazy. My first 78 I bought was Whip It by Devo. Uh huh. <laughs> my first concert was Rick Springfield. Like, none of my stories are cool that way. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was sitting uh, in a uh, place having breakfast with my son the other day. And this song's playing over the speaker, and it's level 42. I said, I saw them in concert. I did, too. Did you really? Before Steve Winwood. I did, too. That's right. I was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. It was still standing, and it was level 42. Steve Winwood came out. It was the uh, the High Life tour. I went to that tour as well. (laughs) I still that album so bad. I love that album. (laughs) It's a great album. Peter Gabriel So. Did you see him when he came and toured and did the whole So album in order? I didn't, but that was, I bought three CDs when they first came out. And it was Bowie's Heroes, Peter Gabriel So, and Billy Joel's The Bridge. Those were the three I played to death because it was the only three I could afford. (laughs) Good choices. (laughs) And I realized, wait, these all have black and white covers. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it's just strange. I think the bridge was black and white, but I just remember they all had that theme to them. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> well, how about that? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> now, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one book with you, and, and I always put this caveat in, if it's a graphic novel, fine. If it's a collection of books, you know, that are all part of the same series, that's fine too. What would you want to have with you, barring anything that's necessary for survival? We're talking about pleasure, something you want to read or something you like to reread. What would that book be? So does the collected works, does it have to actually be published now or could this be a fantasy publication? Oh, good question. Well, I'll allow that. Let's make it a fantasy publication. Okay, so I would bring with me the collected works of Anne McCaffrey. Those books saved my life as a teenager. I found um, Dragon Singer on my high school library shelves. For those of you who aren't familiar, Anne McCaffrey wrote books about the world Pern. And even though there are dragons in them, they were actually science fiction. They weren't fantasy books. Dragon Singer was the first of a trilogy about a small character in those books and how she came to become a professional musician. Um, And I also uh, did a lot of music. And so it really touched me. So anyway, I got into Pern. Those books just saved my life. They just gave me a place to go when I needed to not be in my own. So I would bring all of Anne McCaffrey's books, all her Pern books. Okay. Now, if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, 
what would be the accessory they would package along with your figure or accessories? I think they would have to give me a chair <laughs> to sit in and an iPad. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> that's like 95% of my life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I sit in my therapist chair all day long and talk to people. So it's not very exciting that way. But I would have to be built in with a lot of really cool catchphrases. Like you pull the string and it says, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Tell me more about that. <laughs> oh, man. Like oh, man. Yeah, that's one <laughs> that's I have to. Really cool. I've got to work on that one more. Like, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do the laundry? No. Tell me more. <laughs> you, okay. You know what? What? It works so well, honestly. It does. It really does. Yeah. And then there's another trick. Just say back to them what they said. Well, that shows you're listening, active listening. It is. 90% of relationships. I'm not happy that you did this. Oh, tell me more about that. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So you're not happy because blah, blah, blah. Like, really? That's it. That's what people pay me the big bucks to teach them. It's a big sticking point. It's like, you're not hearing me. I heard you. No, you're not really hearing me. You have to be. Okay. Tell me more. If you're like, I got it. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Don't, don't shut someone down. No. You got to reflect what they say. Absolutely. Believe me. Believe me, I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> what is your beverage of choice? Oh, my grown-up beverage of choice? Mm-hmm. White wine. Ugh, so embarrassing. I was just at a friend's house the other night, and um, one of them was having whiskey on the rocks. And I was like, you know what? All the cool chicks drink whiskey. There's something about that dichotomy of being female and drinking whiskey that just I love and I would love to do that David Barsky brought down some really good whiskey at Gallifrey one in February and I'm like okay now's my chance I'm going to be that cool girl who likes whiskey no no so I wish I had a cooler drink than Chardonnay whiskey is an acquired taste it's tough if you're not used to drinking whiskey yeah I get that I can have a couple fingers of whiskey but it's not my go-to. Now, what makes it more palatable for me is mixing in a little Diet Coke. Well, that's what I hear. I think I probably have to start a little softer. Last night for fun to have something fancy since it was a weekend night. And my wife says, I'm going to make mojitos. Great. So we had the white rum and we have fresh mint outside in our herb garden. And she made it. And I was like, hmm. And I didn't say anything. I was like, hmm, thank you. And she had, and she goes, you know, something's missing. I said, hmm, yeah, yeah, what? I forgot the lime. I said, oh, well, make another one. (laughs) That was the solution. Make it again. Let's make another one right now. They're very good. Final question. What question have you never been asked before that you want someone to ask you? Something people don't know about you that you would like them to know. I just had a conversation about this with a client the other day. I would like someone to ask, what's it like to be a lesbian in this world? What is it like? (laughs) You must answer the question now. (laughs) I knew that was coming. Please share. You know, it's a pretty invisible experience. We were not represented in any significant way most of the time. We have Ellen. We have Peeps. And uh, I hear the Fosters is very good, lesbian couple. But on the whole, compared with a massive amount of entertainment media, social media, even allies, you know, NPR podcasts and such. To be a lesbian is to be really invisible. And there are lots of groups of people that are also invisible. I don't want to claim greater invisibility (laughs) than anybody else. But I didn't really realize how profound that was until a few years ago. There was two days of national conversation around gay parenting. I think it was because the Supreme Court was hearing a case. And so for the first time in my life, 
I was actually the one on the media. I mean, not me literally, but for two days, the news stories were all about two women parenting children together. And it was such an odd experience. It felt very, very strange to me for them to be actually talking about my life. And that's when I realized that, oh, that's because they never talk about your life (laughs) ever. You know, there's no show centered around very few queer people, period. But most of the time in media, when there is a gay character, they're usually men. Two years ago, much more recently, I finally watched The L Word, which I had never watched because when it came out, I was a poor graduate student and couldn't afford Showtime. And that also was a life-altering experience. I never had the experience before of having my story, again, the focus of attention. And again, hadn't realized how invisible I had felt until that point. Again, I think this ultimately goes back to what we were talking about in terms of lots of different kinds of women and lots of different kinds of characters. The diversity of human experience is broad and it's fascinating and complex. And I think it's very interesting. And I would really love to see in all forms of our media, whether it be written, comic books, novels, TV, movies, I'd like us to just really start talking about lots of different kinds of stories and apply all these amazingly creative minds to all the different stories that are out there. I think it will be a powerful way to create empathy and compassion between people who don't come in contact with each other and don't know each other in the same way that listening to these stories on NPR about coal country and the individuals that rely on coal changed how I understood them and that problem. So yeah, I'd like to see more of my stories up there, but I'd like to see more of everybody's stories up there because it's really hard to feel invisible because that means ultimately in the psyche and in the human heart, unimportance. And I don't think that's true. I think everybody, we all are important in our own way. And we all have to say, tell me more. We all have to be listening, wanting to find out more about others. That's a step in the right direction. That's right. Heather, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever form you choose for separation to come out. Thank you so much for that and for having me on your show. Okay, next week on the show, I have a special guest, don't want to tell you who it is yet until I have it in the can, but I think you're going to really enjoy this one. And also I have coming up Andrew Maxwell. He has launched two comics through Kickstarter, Rum Row and Aldous Spark, the former set during the Prohibition period and the latter in 1899. Thank you again for joining me this week. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And please take just a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show spread its word. You can also find the podcast Creator Talks on Stitcher, Google Play, and on Amazon devices, even YouTube. If you have questions or feedback, please email me at my website, creatortalks.com. Thank you for joining me this week. Until next time.